Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary officer and your host, Jennifer Williams. Welcome to another edition of our ongoing series of Travcast interviews with playwrights, in which we talk with playwrights about their current work and also explore some of their thoughts about the art of playwriting and the part it plays in their lives. Today, we are very lucky to have with us the fantastic and amazing playwright Linda McLean. Linda was born in Glasgow, where she studied and trained as a teacher. She traveled teaching English as a foreign language in Europe, America, Africa, and Scandinavia before she wrote plays, which include, uh, there's quite a lot of them, so I'll give you a, a few of them. Uh, the Traverse, for The Traverse, This Is Water, Any Given Day, Stranger's Baby, Shimmer, Olga, and what, One Good Beaten. For Dundee Rep and Oren Moore, What Love Is. For Payne's Plow and Oren Moore, Riddance and the Uncertainty Files. For 784, Cold Cuts and Doc and Doris. Uh, for Magnetic North, Word for Word, and for RSMD, Reminded of Beauty. She adapted Like Water for Chocolate um, and is chairwoman of the Playwright Studio Scotland, has worked for the British Council in Mexico City, Toluca, and Bogota. She regularly works in schools and colleges, and in 2009, she delivered the keynote speech to the Playwrights Guild of Canada. She's currently under commission to the National Theatre of Scotland, Magnetic North, and The Traverse, and her new play, Sex and God for Magnetic North, will be produced in 2012. Uh, so that's a very auspicious biography there. Um, Linda is also um, such a warm and lovely person, and it's such a delight to have her with us today. You have um, recently been creative fellow at the University of Edinburgh's Institute of Advanced Studies in Humanities, otherwise known as IASH, and that's been a joint fellowship with the Traverse and IASH. And you know, Joe Clifford has also uh, had sort of s split that residency with you this year. I was just wondering if you could tell us about this experience and what it's been like for you. Uh, IASH was a wonderful experience. I wasn't sure before I started there what it was going to be like, but in fact, it was a complete gift. It, all that's required of me, apart from engaging with the writings of David Hume, was to be there and have conversations with international fellows from all over the world. And every single one of them was doing something interesting. It's actually amazing that I did any work at all. <laughs> <laughs> because I really got the talking bit right. Mm. They um, they have lunches too, don't they? Yes, every Tuesday we have lunches, and it's because otherwise everyone's sitting in their own little office working in their own little topic, a bit like you do as a writer mm. anyway. So um, the Tuesday lunches, which at first seem a little bit awe-inspiring, because these are some of the brainiest people I've ever come across. Um, studying extremes of philosophy and uh, other subjects and so at first yes it's a little bit awe-inspiring but then you actually come to understand it's really just about having a dialogue with people about ideas which is surely most of our favorite thing because I was talking to Susan from IFC the other day I was there on a Tuesday and it smelled amazing the lunch that they're <laughs> and she was saying how impressed she was that you dove right into the primary texts immediately and I'm not sure if you had you done much um, philosophy work in philosophy previously no 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 I hadn't um, 
And in actual fact, I did spend a little time reading how to read Hume because I hadn't studied any philosophy and it's quite dense and there's a lot of nomenclature. It's a little bit like learning a whole other language or suddenly being thrown into something like, I imagine, um, Apple and and trying to understand all of their numbers and codes for things. So I did actually spend some time tr trying to learn how to read Hume. One of the things that, um, that I came to feel about that was that the most complex text, which was the treatise, was the one that there was the most disagreement about. In some ways, though, his language had become easier to understand after that. And that kind of intrigued me a little bit because I thought, well, I'm not alone in finding that difficult. So when I came to read the treatise, it actually demanded a lot of a lot of creativity from me in order to understand it. So I have my engagement with the treatise, which I think is quite personal. Because that was the other thing Susan was saying, I thought that was so interesting, was that one of the joys of having creative fellows at IASH is that you, apart from all the inspiration you're presumably um, deriving from the experience, are interacting with the academics who are studying there and you are inspiring them, reminding them that the whole pursuit of academia and uh, is a creative process as well and that, that that engagement with someone else's ideas is ultimately a creative act. Yeah, I think that's really true and I think um, that there are academics who either did know that and forgot it or never understood it and thought that they were choosing away from creativity. But in fact, if you look at some of the um, the finest papers in philosophy, what you're seeing is an individual's creative response to something. And the processes that they go through um, in order to write them are very much like the processes that you go through to write anything original, I think. One of the first times I had the pleasure of meeting you, it was when you were doing a playwriting workshop for the Traverse about finding inspiration for your writing from looking at art. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that was fun, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was an that amazing was day. And we started out at the, was it the Museum of Modern Art yeah. in Edinburgh? And you took us around the galleries and we looked at some particular pieces of artwork and then went back to the Traverse to discuss it. But one of the things that I um, took away from that and that was so amazing to me was um, your, you gave us a, a kind of new way of looking at the art. Uh, um, I think it was almost like a kind of archery um, bullseye and there were levels of um, perception that you were able to sort of approach the artwork through. Yeah. And I, I guess I just wanted to know, um, because you've been working at IASH, and if that those sort of notions of looking and perception and approaching something in order for it to be inspirational, are there sort of overlaps there? Yeah, I think there are. Um, and I haven't thought of it before, so I'm probably not going to think <laughs> it through as well as I might otherwise given time. But I think at the centre of that kind of bullseye target was... was the individual and and then there was the room 
in the building and then the art and where it was in the building and who had placed it there and what it might be asking of you so that it was a um, a step-by-step moving away from yourself to engage with the thing that was outside. And I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly the same thing that I did uh, at IASH, which was, I was initially very much focused on what it felt like to be me in that circumstance. And then once you, once you forget, not how you're feeling, but if you forget to look inward and start to look outward, then the things that you're engaging with speak more to you. And you, uh, part of the outcome of that residency will be a play that you mm. produce, which is very exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, you have worked previously on some of um, the work you did, I think, last year, the year before. Uh, and I think this came out of another residency you'd done in America with um, doing lots of interviews. Last and year. Having, was that last year? And yeah. having transcriptions of the interviews and then... Um, editing and molding those texts into into play texts into plays, and again, I thought that um, that's sort of an interesting thing to lead on into, and in that it seemed to me a really interesting way of starting with a particular point of inspiration and converting that to something that you can see on the stage. But I was just curious about um, maybe sort of your thoughts on where the the, how the writers involved in working with for verbatim text. If you, I'm not sure if you consider it to be verbatim text or if it's a different. Um, no, no, I would definitely uh, because mm. I didn't add a word to it. Mm. Um, if anything, um, and I was kind of slightly inspired by the chats that I had with Susan Ayash ah. before I went to the states oh, okay. because I went to talk to her about, you know, the parameters of taking on such a thing. I was I was quite afraid that I was going to be asked to write a play about David Hume as opposed to a response to an engagement with his text or his thinking. And we spoke about, and he has lots to say about uncertainty because as soon as you free yourself from the idea that everything has a cause and effect or a predictable cause and effect, then what opens up is... is a lifetime of uncertainty, you know, and the future. Uh, I love this phrase, and I'm sure it's Hume, but uh, the future may not resemble the past. Mm. And I just think that's such a gift. So as, as, soon as, you, as soon as you think like that, what you become aware of is, well, a limitless choice. It, the appearance of limitless choice, at any way. Um, and uncertainty. Uncertainty about where that next footfall will be. And, uh, yes, I, I went out. I actually took another piece of work out with me to the Orchard Project in the States, but by that time I had become so entranced by the idea of uncertainty and started to talk to people there about it and realised it was such a common, rich theme that we mostly don't explore. And and yes, so I did hours and hours of recording people on the subject of uncertainty. Uh, and 
I think it's so interesting uh, also with the the form that those plays ended up taking because so often I think one way of looking at a play is in an uncertain world, someone has written down, captured a, a, a trajectory of certainty. They've said, <laughs> well, for these characters at this particular moment, this is what's going to happen to them and we're all going to spend that time with them. Yeah. And we know, I know as a playwright, how it's going to end uh, by the time it's written at least. And by, it seems to me that by using these real interviews with real people, even that was giving up some of your control as a playwright on that certainty of saying, though again, obviously you're making decisions about the, the shape of those texts. And was there anything interesting formally for you with those questions of... It, it I mean, that was, I think, the single hardest thing after the actual labour of transcribing, because I transcribed everything, every noise in the room, every breath, every change of rhythm, every change of thought direction, and um and and, and all of that, um, as you know. Um, but after that, the most difficult thing was to take those hundreds of hours and say, okay, what's a relevant 40 minutes? What which parts do I choose without changing anything? Which parts do I choose? What very loose narrative might I use as, as a spine to see me through it while knowing that these things are so loosely connected? And I was interested in experimenting with that. You know, how, how far can you stretch an audience's ability to string unconnected ideas together into a narrative and be comfortable. And um, I know for some people I stretched it too far. But, <laughs> but I, I had to have some way, some spine for me just to be able to make choices. But it was very loose and I didn't have, and, and I knew one of the things I was going to have to give up was the sense of people would get what I meant by making that choice. What I was really interested in is what people, what people gave to watching that because you had to invest a lot of yourself as an audience member to make a narrative. Yes. And did you find that having gone through that experience, I mean, something I, I wanted to touch on as well as how I'm very interested in poetry and how I've always related to your work previous to, to the verbatim work in terms of it seems to me to be very poetic as very as well as very um it, you know completely appropriate for as a play for the stage but even if you look at it on the page something like strangers babies has a has a very elegant form to it on the page and um i do think there's a deep connection between uh poetry and actually if you look at the way we speak naturally the way we break our uh lines when we speak we don't often speak in whole sentences with a full stop at the end and there's pauses <laughs> <Really>? and, <laughs> and that that once you start looking at that sculpturally that's really poetry but also I, I it seems to me that that was something that uh, was an awareness of that was present in your work always but I guess I was curious to ask you about the sense of the poetic and and did you have a feeling about that previous to the verbatim work and also is there were there things you learned from doing the verbatim work that then you've taken on into more traditional playwriting you've done since then? Yes, and I can tell you exactly when that started. Um, well, I can tell you when when I started to actually consciously write it 
like that. Because I think I've always been aware of uh, the, the rhythms of people's speech. I think that's why early on, um, people who liked naturalistic sounding drama thought that I was writing something naturalistic, whereas in fact what I was doing was harnessing the rhythms of speech and setting them in an unreal setting. But I had written a play for, in fact, I don't think it, it, it was what became One Good Beating. Oh. And I was in a uh, writer's group in Southampton, and I was the only Scots person there. And I had written this, and I was kind of slightly nervous about presenting it. And we all read each other's work. And they read One Good Beating. It has three characters in it. And as they were reading it, I became convinced that it was awful and unreadable because they weren't making sense of it. And and I didn't realise at that time that what I had... what I'll have to think this through. It's that the meaning of what we want to see is actually inherent in the rhythm that we choose or that or that with which we say it. And I went home that night thinking, I'm never going to get a plane no. anywhere. <laughs> but behind that, I was thinking, or I could lay it out in such a way so that it would be clear where the rhythmic breaks are. And that's what I did. And I took it back the next week, laid out in that rhythmic way, and they read it perfectly. And it didn't matter that they were English and it was written with a Scots sensibility. They read it and I heard it and it was it was a real eye opener. And from then I thought, this is something well because I'm I don't think or speak or particularly write, I think like um an English person. I think there are, and, and that's too wide. It would be, I'd be as well saying I don't, I don't think or read or write like someone from Newcastle mm. or someone from Winchester or someone from America or, or any of those places. Where I grew up is, you know, you can hear it. <laughs> and, and I think in that there's a thinking that's, that's behind that that's, that also belongs there. Um, and so... As soon as I realised that that's what I was doing, accompanied with the fact that when I start to write, I start to write because I hear a character speaking. And if I hear the character speaking and I write it the way I hear it, I'd, I, I feel I have the whole character. Wonderful. So I don't know that I thought it was poetic, but I knew that it was structurally rhythmic. And that that was enabling the communication to happen. Yeah. And and so doing the um, this is water and the uncertainty files. Did that? Have you seen any uh, effects from that in the work you've been doing more recently? I think my work had moved um, more and more to. Uh, become even more rhythmic anyway I don't think that I would that I would want to to impose that 
on a character. So if I have a character whose speech is quite broken or um, I often think of one of the characters in uh, This Is Water and The Uncertainty Files who punctuated everything with like, you know, like it was like and I was like, you know, and we were like and, you know, it was like a really like long time before like <laughs> we got to like, you know, the end of the like, you know, the sentence like. <laughs> and, and, and if I did, if I... Uh, <laughs> If a character suggested his or herself to me w and who, who spoke like that, then yes, I would write in that way. But I wouldn't impose it on a character. Fantastic. Well, I think that... That is our time, as always, rapidly disappearing. But um, So you're working on... Uh, on the Ayash play now, and you've got a few other projects on the go. I do. Which is very exciting. So very best of luck with all of those. Thank we you. look forward to them uh, with much excitement. And uh, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your thoughts and time with us today and your words. And it's been a great pleasure to have you here. Um, Thank, thank you for you. asking me, oh, Jennifer. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another Travcast, and we hope to have you along for the next one soon. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.